Hey everybody, welcome back to Gray Malkin's Lane's newest pay. Oh, geez, my words. Hey everybody, welcome back to Gray Malkin Lane's newest Patreon episode. I am so happy to welcome back Mr. Jay Ferber to the show. Jay, how are you? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me back. I'm so happy to have you back. I've been wanting to talk to you again for a long time. Jay was on uh, our episode uh, all about Red Raven, where Angel landed on that random island full of bird people. We had a pretty good time laughing and getting to know Jay and talking about uh, his incredible work. Uh, how have things been for you in 2023, my friend? Uh, you know, there's been some ups and downs. Uh, right now, we're at a down Um uh, you know, as you may be aware, the Writers Guild is on strike uh, and I'm a TV writer, so that's impacted me. I, I just came back from the picket line not too long ago today, so my legs are uh, are throbbing at the moment. Um, yeah. But uh, but overall, it's, it's it's been a it's 2023 has been a good time. But uh, but this last we're uh, as we record this, we're, this is Friday, May 5th. This is our first week of the strike. Uh and there's no telling how long it will last or what the world will look like when we're on the other side of it. I have never been part of a strike. I have certainly witnessed some. And now a strike, of course, is very different than a protest. This is a union right. standing up for the union members saying we deserve better pay. We deserve better treatment. There are millionaires and billionaires running this stuff and you're paying us pennies and it's not OK. Uh, how yes. is the strike going so far? And of course, I am in full solidarity with you and the other creative professionals who are standing up for themselves. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, so far, this is my first strike as well. I, I wasn't uh, yet in the guild when we struck back in 07 and 08. Uh, so I'm new to all this. Um, uh, but from what I can see, there is uh, an incredible amount of solidarity, not just among the writers, uh, you know, I think 98 point something percent of us voted uh, in favor of the strike. So we're overwhelmingly in support of it. But also more, almost more importantly, the other unions, SAG, which is the actors union and the various Teamster unions all seem to be in support of us as well. The DGA, the directors union, um, they're all issuing statements of support and really showing solidarity. Uh, which will also help, I think. Uh, so it's really nice to see the support of these other uh, unions and members of different guilds within Hollywood all kind of standing with us. Uh, and they also have their own negotiations coming up soon as well. Um, and so hopefully, you know, we can all sort of stand together uh, and get through this sooner than later. Now, obviously, you have a, uh, a I don't know the right word to use here a storied career as a writer working in a lot of different genres and a lot of different areas. What are you working on lately? Uh, lately, I, the, the last show I was on was Supergirl, which ended what a year, year and a half ago. I lost uh -huh, track. Uh -huh. um, I've, I did an episode of an animated series that uh, I can't speak about yet. Uh, and then just a lot of what we call development, a lot of pitching my own stuff, uh, you know, writing pilots, writing pitches, uh, that sort of thing. So that that's what I've been spending most of my time on this last year, year and a half. I've talked to a couple writers this last few weeks. They're like, well, the strike's happening. I'm in a place where I can't pick it. So I'm working on those projects that I had in my, you know, yes. shoebox in my closet from five years ago. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> the time yes, to work yeah, on the yeah. dream stuff for a minute. Yeah, I'm 
I'm trying to figure out how to balance walking the picket line and then also carve out time uh, to just write something new, uh, you know, just because we're writers and, you know, we're not writing for money right now, but a lot of us, I think, are still going to write something we're passionate about, whether it's to have a new sample or something to try to sell when the strike is over or just something to keep us sane, you know, because a lot of us, this is, it's a job, but it's also a passion and a hobby and it's, uh, I have friends who will only write if they're being paid to write, but I'm, for me, writing is an escape. So I'm always yeah. working on something. Writing, uh, even. writing for some people I know is even kind of like a spirituality. Like I feel centered yeah. in the universe when I'm writing and I, and I'm speaking yeah. for myself as a writer. I'm not working professionally as a writer, but I've written a number of things. And if I can take just 20 minutes even, or a few hours on a Saturday to write a story, I feel so much better. It centers me back into myself. Yeah. And you sometimes are yeah. writing for other people, and then sometimes you get to dream up the stuff from your own brain and and bring that into the world as well. Uh, I think you're That's a phenomenal right. writer, and I think you're a tremendous human being. I hope that this shakes out quickly, and I hope that you all get the uh, bonuses and the boosts and the raises that you deserve, because it's a matter of respect. I remember back in the 2007 era being a person... Uh, working for uh, Marvel Comics loosely, but also just as a fan of whatever shows, uh, Lost comes to mind. Like, uh, yeah. it was supposed to be a 22-episode uh, season, but it turned into 10 because of the writer's strike. Like, I remember those kinds of things happening. And that one went yeah. on for yeah. a while. How do you how do you see this one going? I mean, I really don't know. I <clears throat> Because it's my first strike, I, I don't know what to expect. Um, and and the, the landscape and the circumstances are so different from the last strike, but I, I, I fear we're going to be in this for a while, for a, a few months uh, at least. Um, and we, we're just having to kind of accept that reality. I mean, I'd love to be wrong. I'd love for next week we learn that they're back at the table negotiating and everything works out. But I, I think that's a little unrealistic based on how far apart we are. It seems like a silly thing to have to say, please treat me like a human who deserves a living yes. wage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I uh, I appreciate you sharing your insights uh, on that space. Uh, now, Jay, for for longtime listeners, uh, has written for Marvel Comics uh, in the X Men world. I know you're associated with a few different things. We got to talk about Generation X. We got to talk about New Warriors and a few of the other things you did last time you came on my show. During your Gen X run, uh, you did several different things with your story where you expanded the school they were all attending, the Massachusetts Academy, to making it a school where a lot of human students started attending. It was more like a regular campus, and the Gen X yep. kids were acting more like superheroes at the time. Uh, we had a yep. set roster of students. There's a lot of crazy stories jumping around, lots of family drama. We'll We'll talk about the vampires and the St. Croix and other time. <laughs> but uh, we also had Emma and Banshee, of course, uh, yeah. running the school. The character we chose to focus on for our episode today is the character uh, Adrienne Frost. Uh, Emma Frost is a member of the Hellfire Club initially, and we learn eventually about her sister Cordelia early in Gen X. We then learn about her yeah. sister Adrienne. And then over time, we learn she has a brother, Christian. We learn a little bit more about her mom and dad. And then a few years later, uh, Carl Bowlers did a whole series called Emma Frost, where he really delves into her childhood and features some of these characters more prominently. Tell me a little bit, if we can start there, about your goal of uh, working with Emma Frost back when you were on Gen X and the creation of Adrienne, if you will. 
Okay. Um, I'll preface this. I probably said this last time we chatted too. It's been a long time. Oh, my memory time. is hazy. <laughs> um, you know, I don't have, I've changed computers so many times that, that I, I don't have a lot of my old notes or pitches. But what I do remember is that by the time I took over the book, you know, Emma in the X-Men was always an adversary and an antagonist. And, you know, she was sort of redeemed during the Generation X run where we saw kind of a softer side of her and, and she became a little more of a protagonist. And I think by the time I came onto the book, I felt like her, and this is no disrespect to any of the work done before me, but I felt like a little of the, the her rough edges had been sanded off a little too much. And I, and I wanted, I felt like I had a choice to either make Emma more adversarial or which would have been jarring because of all her character progression or introduce someone new who could sort of fill that role, who could be a little, who could create more conflict within our characters. And uh, the editor of Generation X at the time, Frank Pitarisi, who's become a good friend of mine, uh, one of the things we bonded over was our love of soap operas. And Generation X was very much a soap opera uh, as well as a, as, a, as a superhero comic. Uh, so I kind of relied on, you know, a kind of soap opera kind of character to create, you know, Emma's heretofore unknown older sister, who was a lot like Emma used to be, just ruthless and, and, and you know, just had of a, a little more cold hearted. Uh, and I thought it would be fun to sort of show Emma playing against a character who was in a lot, in a lot of ways like Emma used to be. And that would be a fun source of conflict. Uh, and so that was really my thinking in, in introducing Adrian and, and coming up with her. So Emma, and we'll, we'll do a quick recap. Emma is a beloved character in the X-Men franchise for many reasons, but this is an era of her continuity where she was just kind of building in popularity with people. This is before Morrison's run, where she then becomes one of the feature X-Men characters that everybody loves. Uh, Emma was a member of the Hellfire Club. She wore... Uh, lingerie basically all the time and was kind of a mental crazy like task mistress kind of character for a little while then we get a softer side of her where she becomes the headmaster of the Mass massachusetts academy and runs the team called the hellions which is kind of the opposite number to the new mutants uh fast forward a few years and the hellions are all killed and emma is put into a coma in a sentinel attack and then the phalanx attack and Emma wakes up from the coma and it's she and Banshee that kind of help save the day. I'm oversimplifying some more complicated stories, but this is an era of her continuity where she's now put in charge of another team of students. Early on in the Gen X run, we meet Cordelia. Uh, do you have any words on Cordelia Frost? <laughs> uh, I, I just, I vaguely remember that, that she was Emma's younger sister and was more of a, uh, a little more carefree and 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 just kind of a troublemaker. Uh, um, uh, that, that's like, my big memory. Yeah, she's a little more like. We'll talk about Cordelia another time. We'll do it. I'll do an episode on her one day. But she's a little bit more uh, like goth anarchist energy yeah. for yeah. me. Yeah. There's all that craziness yeah. with Mondo. Uh, Adrienne right. feels like uh, soap opera is a great way to describe her. She feels like a character on like Melrose Place for those of yeah. us of the age. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she she was she was uh, like a Heather Locklear on Melrose Place, or like mm. uh, Erica Kane from whatever soap opera. That All was. my children, uh, yes. 
uh, yeah, she she was created to be that kind of character, this sort of larger than life, uh, suffers no fools, sort of no nonsense, ruthless businesswoman. But also like so sexy, like high heels and yes. like open cleavage and everyone in the room's gaga. Well, <laughs> when you've got Terry Jackson drawing your stories, everybody looks gorgeous and sexy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, Terry Terry Dodson is an amazing artist for sure. So it's uh, it's Generation X forty eight when we first learn of Adrienne. Emma has slowly opened up to, about her past. Uh, she's talking to Banshee about her childhood. Uh, she's like, you know, you've heard of Cordelia, and you've heard of how I got kicked out of the house, and I had to live in the streets. And we did talk about this era in Emma's history when we did the Generation X minus one review on my show for listeners. Uh, but now she mentions Adrienne for the first time, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read her quote here. She says, three of us in all, we were quite close growing up." We all developed mutant powers, but mine were the only blatant ones. Our father decided to, decided to have me institutionalized for my own protection. You know all about how I escaped from the institution and fended for myself on the streets, but Adrienne was on the fast track to success and became an even more successful entrepreneur than myself. Now, at this point, Christian Frost did not exist. This is Emma's little brother. But we have the idea of a family full of mutant siblings. And it's issue number 49 where Emma Frost storms into Meridian Industry or Enterprises to speak to Adrienne, who is so passive aggressive on the phone. She's in this massive office, like a full stone statue of an angel in it. She's in this black pinstripe suit with black rimmed glasses and uh, gorgeous brown hair. Uh, do you have my notes there? Uh, I don't have them in front of me. Oh, no, I, yeah, I, I read them. Yeah, yeah. But, uh... That's completely okay. I was going to have you read this quote, but I'll, I'll read it. So she goes... She's on the phone and she goes, Philip, Philip, you're stuttering. Slow down. I am an entrepreneur, not some sort of warmonger. Where do you think I can get my hands on superhuman mercenaries? Oh, for the love of... Stop, you're embarrassing yourself. The truth of the matter is I don't have any muscle. Not the kind you mean, at least. I'm sure you can handle this trans situation just fine on your own. And if you can't, well, hope your resume is current. All right, okay, now dry those tears and show me why I hired you. I'll be in touch. And Emma comes in because the school is bankrupt and she needs Adrian's help to save it. Uh, and Adrian says, and then I, after this quote, I'll, I'll have you <laughs> tell me about this story introduction. Adrian goes, oh my, you always did have a flair for the dramatic. Emma, let me get this straight. You took a nasty hit on the stock market, thereby placing your little school in financial jeopardy, and you want me to bail you out? And she checks the calendar to make sure it's not April Fool's Day. We haven't seen each other in 10 years. And Emma says, eight years, four months, and 21 days. And Adrian says, but who's counting, right? My point is, what makes you think I'd help you after all this time? And Emma says, you started building your financial empire while I was still fending for myself on the streets of New York. I could have come to you then for some kind of a handout, a nest egg, if you will, but I didn't. I needed to start my career, my life on my own. And I knew you'd never respect me if I did it any other way, but I did it. Sure, I had to do business with some unsavory individuals, but I built my own place in the world from the ground up. But things are different now. We're not talking about financial standing. We're talking about the future of a very special group of children. You asked me why I thought you'd help me? Because we're family and because I need your help. And Adrienne says, because we're family. Emma, dear, family is for people who can't make friends on their own. And then, <laughs> and then she takes a call from Philip and asks Emma to leave. But we learn here that she has psychometric powers. 
So let's talk about this introduction for just a moment, if you will. This uh, this Heather Locklear character is fabulous. <laughs> and you did it justice. Uh, I would not have read that as, uh, as dramatically uh, and impressively as you did. So that was... Uh... <laughs> It was like a little dominatrix um, yeah. inside me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I I just wanted to show, uh, from what I remember, just that, yeah, that she is passive aggressive and pithy and, uh, yeah, not above uh, just needling people and belittling them to get what she wants. And just because she can, she's just not a nice person. Uh, you know, I really wanted to highlight how cruel and and just sort of haughty she was compared to Emma, who's now kind of having to come and beg hat in hand uh, for her help. Um, and which is not something Emma Frost would ever want to do. Uh, well, and especially with this particular character, as we learn more about yes. their history. Uh, and then the choice to give her psychometric powers. Uh, tell us a little bit about what that power set is and why you made that decision. It, the power set is basically Adrian can touch an object and get psychic impressions from it and see, you know, its history, see who held it, what they did with it, that sort of thing. Um, so I think part of it was in wanting to keep with the psychic powers that Emma has, uh, to sort of keep it in the family a bit. Um, and I, I don't recall if there was anything honestly any more thought that went into it than that than just it was an interesting power that we haven't seen before i mean we've seen it before but not uh in 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 that book it wasn't on in in play uh very much and like i didn't want her to be a physical you know she's not super strength or or you know laser beams or anything like that i i wanted it to be a more sort of passive power that that could allow her to you know, she doesn't have a tail, she doesn't have pointy ears, she can blend into polite society, but still use this power, you know, it would give her a lot of leverage and is probably the key to how she built this empire. Uh, you know, it's a great way to get dirt and leverage and blackmail yeah. on people. There's a certain level of menace to this power because it's subtle. People don't yeah. know what she knows, but she builds this. Right. You, you get kind of the idea that she has built this empire around her by calling in arrangements, by threatening to expose people. Uh, and again, we're going to look back into her childhood a little bit later. Uh, Cordelia has her demonstrated power is like an immunity to telepathy, where Christian, right. when we meet him, has kind of uh, the ability to project images and he's a telepath, but it's kind of fear-based uh, Emma, of course, has the telepathy and the ability to change into diamond form. And then Cordelia right. has this psychometric ability, which is something Longshot of the X-Men has, but doesn't use very often. The ability to read oh, objects that sense their history. That There's that classic Claremont <laughs> issue where they're re returning all the treasure from Australia to everyone on Christmas, if you remember right. that. I, th yes, I hadn't thought about that in ages, but I forgot Longshot even had that power. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's not used very often. So uh, Adrian agrees to help Emma, uh, but she has a condition. She has to be named the school's new headmistress, which is just yeah. the best way to get, you know, <laughs> a straw in Emma's bonnet, for heaven's sake. 
Uh, and then yeah. they make the decision at, at Adrian's demands that they have to start allowing rich human students to start coming to the financial uh, aid of the school, to the private academy. Uh, tell me about that decision. That was another really bold one because you're mixing the Gen N kids with this whole general population of students. Yeah, if I remember right, I think that was a Frank Pitarisi's idea. Like, I think that would have happened even if I wasn't on the book. I think whoever was writing it that was the direction they wanted to go from what I remember. Uh, and it, it would just help set the book apart a little bit. So it didn't feel like new mutants or the old X-Men comics that to have these mutant kids, you know, get receiving training and stuff, but uh, um, in secret while coexisting with these normal kids, it just added a layer of secrecy and an opportunity for more melodrama, uh, which, you know, we just wanted to kind of give the shot, the, the book a shot in the arm. And it happens in issue number 50, which is kind of a, an anniversary issue, right? Yep. So it's like, a, it's like a, a, a status quo change a little bit. I was reading the books yeah. at the time and I remember being like, oh, this is a big, this is a big shift. Uh, in yeah. issue 50, Adrian finds Emma sitting in the kitchen. I've been looking for you, resorted to hiding from the new children, have you? And Emma says, you don't know the half of it, Adrian. When you bailed the school out of financial quagmire, I love that word, quagmire, that I'd gotten us into, increasing the student body seemed to be the perfect solution. I guess I didn't foresee the effect it'd have on me. Back before I folded the school into Xavier's, this school had a large student body of non-mutants, as well as a selected few mutants. But after my students were killed by Trevor Fitzroy, I closed the school down. I thought I was through with academia until Sean and Xavier talked me into helping train the next generation of mutants. This is sad. We're sisters. We should have kept in touch. Then you'd know all this. Please spare me the hallmark moment, okay? I don't want to run my I don't want my mascara to run. By the way, I'm glad you agreed to formally change the name of the school back to Massachusetts Academy. Ever since Onslaught, the name Xavier doesn't exactly instill confidence in people's hearts anymore. So this is their Onslaught era of the comics. Uh, and right. then uh, and then Emma sees the news report about Nate Gray and kind of runs off from there. So Adrian's kind of a subtle presence at the school for this first little while. Uh, do you want to talk about that interaction at all? Uh, yeah, it's just... Um... <clears throat> I just like the way Adrian can't really speak to Emma without needling her at, about something. Like <laughs> she, she loves to push Emma's buttons. And I just thought it was fun to do that to the character, to just, you know, you want, you want your protagonists to suffer to some degree, at least. Uh, and Adrian was just a fun sort of over the top character to write for, you know, she was always, uh, kind of heightened and melodramatic. And so, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, Adrian uh, is really, you can sense there's like a conniving. She's got a long-term plan yeah. in mind. And Emma's weirdly just like a little bit vulnerable with her. This is kind of a, an interesting yeah. side. She brings a, a new side of Emma out in that way. Yeah. Uh, we see Adrian in 51. She hears about the Gen X students fighting uh, the Gene Nation, which we'll talk more about them at another time as well. Uh, she also hears about Banshee being in trouble. Uh, so she recommends the kids go save them. And guess what? She's designed new costumes for them. Uh, see, these are the these are the red and gold costumes uh, uh, that yeah. we talked about in your episode a little bit. Uh, people yeah. don't realize it was Adrian Frost who designed them. <laughs> yes. yes. And which that is, was another... I'm pretty sure that was another Frank Pitarisi, uh, I'm going to say mandate, but not in a bad way. But that was something else he wanted to do was to to give the kids new costumes with masks 
so they actually had secret identities that they had to protect and, and have them function a little more like superheroes than they had been up until that point. Uh, like traditional superheroes who were, who were actually fighting crime, not just defending themselves when some evil mutant, you know, attacks the school. Sure. Uh, so it was a conscious choice to kind of give the book a, a bit of a different identity that way. Well, and, and it's not stated outright, but another way she's digging at Emma is getting her students involved in dangerous activities. Look, I made you costumes, but shh, don't tell my sister about it, right? Like it's the, there's this element of meanness to her, or spitefulness. Uh, 52, she sees uh, Leech and Artie hanging out at the school dressed like Spider-Ham and, and Dr. Doom, which is <laughs> the duck Dr. Doom, which is amazing. Uh, she's She's interacting with people and then in 53, we get a surprising turn. Uh, Adrian hires the mercenary Paladin uh, for various assignments. Uh, she wants him yep. to retrieve a samurai, samurai sword from the mercenary group, the Rising Suns. So let me hear from you a little bit about your inclusion of Paladin of all characters. And you created this whole team of characters called the Rising Suns. Yeah, Paladin was one of those characters. And, and I, I think a lot of writers of my generation just for whatever reason, Paladin is cool to a lot of people. Uh, I think for me, I don't even know if I've ever read a Paladin comic before that, but his Marvel Universe entry in the Marvel Universe handbook had such a cool, it might've been a Paul Smith drawing. I forget, but just a cool simplicity. And I love a hired gun. Uh, and it was just my chance to like, Hey, I've always liked Paladin. Let me use him for this issue. And uh, luckily, nobody objected. Uh, so there was really no bigger motive than me wanting to play with Paladin a little bit. And it, and it plays into Adrian having this sort of network of operatives and shady business dealings that uh, a sort of hired gun like Paladin would fit right in with. Um, and the Rising Suns was just another opportunity to create something, you know, to contribute something to the Marvel Universe and, and give generation x another group of antagonists uh and i think i'm trying to remember i think terry dodson might have requested that, that he wanted to design some new villains uh and, and especially with a, a japanese flavor uh, i could be misremembering uh but it was just a fun opportunity to create some new bad guys the Rising Suns is a little-known group of X-Men foes. They show up in Generation X 53-54, and then, weirdly, in 2006, they show up in New Avengers 16 through 19, if you didn't know that, in a Brian yeah. Michael Bendis book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or at least some of them do. Now, the yeah, Rising so Suns are a group of mercenaries. Their names are Dragonwing, The Sign, Nightwind, Jet Black, Tough Love, and my favorite, the evil cheerleader, Spoil Sport. <laughs> Which very, it's like a very Buffy the Vampire Slayer feel to this whole yes. team somehow. Uh, but they're they're a lot of fun. So uh, Adrian has sent uh, Paladin, uh, that he ends up teaming with Generation X. They fight the Rising Suns. Uh, she starts to hint to Jubilee a little bit that I've got a very sordid past. I've done some bad things in Madripoor. You do not want to cross me or you will not like what happens. This is kind of Adrian's level of menace as she's manipulating the kids. And yeah. uh, we also learn here that uh, that Emma is unable to read Adrian's mind, which makes her again a very interesting foil for uh, Emma. The the shared history, yeah. the ire, but also she's immune to Emma's powers, which is interesting. Uh, and as we go into the next issue, Emma confronts Adrian, who finally reveals the kids are in Madripoor. 
Uh, and uh, the, the way she gets it, Emma grabs Adrian by the neck and slams her against the wall. She's like, fucking tell me the truth. Like uh, it was, she's being pushed too far. Uh, the kids end up coming back with the samurai sword. And uh, Emma tells them Adrian wanted the sword because it was the one that she had killed her husband with. <laughs> <laughs> and she wanted to be to use her powers uh, to be with him in his final moments. But Adrian right. grips the sword and she can feel her husband's last memories. And she thinks out loud. Uh, so, my dear darling Steve, when this cold steel pierced your heart, did you know it was me? Did you know I arranged your death on that cold night? Did it hurt, Stephen? I hope it did, because that's what happens when you cross me. So she had her <laughs> husband murdered with this sword, which is why she wants it, so she can feel his death. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember wanting it to be the kind of twist where you think, oh, she has a sensitive side and, and this is, has sentimental value to her. And then you realize what the sentiment is, is that she just wanted to experience her husband's last moments because she killed him and, and wanted, you know, the, the, uh, to sort of taste it, uh, which I thought was pretty messed up. Uh, and, and yeah, that was, that was pretty fun. I, from what I remember, I don't know that we had a larger plan for Adrian. Like, I don't know that we were, building to anything in particular with her or if she was just there to just be sort of a constant source of friction uh in in the among the ensemble uh so it 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 and, and the book sort of gets i don't want to say derailed but takes a turn when frank Pitarisi leaves and we get a new editor uh and and you know the story's kind of taken a uh a different direction than we had been going in. Uh, so even if we had a plan for Adrian, I don't think we would have ever gotten there because the book changed so drastically. That was one of my big questions. So it's Generation X 55 and 56, where it feels like a very different book. The kids are trapped in uh, like an alternate reality or like a, like a construct and a mental construct where they are living out the lives of the Hellions and they're going to yeah. die in this reality. And I, I wasn't quite clear on how this happens. It, it feels like Emma's powers are kind of going out of control, uh, but she wants these kids to die and she wants Emma to experience that so that she can ma like make her sister pay. Uh, it's 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 a bold story. Uh, tell us a little bit about this. This is also where she dresses as the White Queen. We'll talk about this costume in a moment. <laughs> it's, you know, I agree with everything you said and I don't really understand it either. And that was part of the problem because when... This was the first issue that the new editor took over. And from what I recall, Bob Harris, I think, the editor-in-chief at the time, had the idea of, you know, I want Generation X to inhabit the bodies of the Hellions and relive their last days. And it was, I was just sort of giving these marching orders. And I was just like, but, but why? Like, that, that doesn't make sense. So I had to try to make that idea make sense. Uh, and I don't know that I ever did. It, it was a weird sort of um, assignment where, you know, I was given a story, but no real reason for the story and had to kind of, you know, figure it out. Uh, and yeah, it, I don't really, I'm not particularly proud of those two issues because it never really comes together. The motives aren't clear as to exactly why Adrian was doing this and what the stakes are like it, it, yeah, the whole thing is just kind of confusing. Uh, it's a cool idea. Like, I, I get the idea of it, but 
I was never able to um, to really make it work uh, to my satisfaction. So this is really. So I this think. is where Frank Pitarisi left the book, and Jason Liebig came in, and it sounds like Bob Harris was kind of moving things around. I know that there was a lot of turnover, even with editors in chief around this time as well. Uh, yeah. and, and there was a lot of things happening and it's not long before you're off the book as well. This, wow. it sounds like this was a little bit of a, a, a wonky time to work for Marvel during this era. Yeah. Yeah. From, from there, from that Hellion story on with the book, uh, it, it never felt the same to me. Uh, and I don't even, I'd have to go back and look. I was only, I was only on for a few more issues after that. Uh, and, and, you know, the plans I had never really went anywhere. Uh, so the, my run kind of ended more with a whimper than a bang so uh, because then they, they, they bring warren ellis in to yeah. kind of take over for those books uh and then it was just a whole new status quo they did this on multiple titles they like got rid of creative teams and brought in new talent try to shake things up and the books felt wildly different and a lot of those eras are not super fondly remembered among fans there's a few interesting moments yeah. But some of them are pretty uncomfortable. And and Ellis was only on the book for, I don't know, six issues or something like that. Maybe even right. just four. Now, in number 57, and then we're going to step back to 55 again. You do have Emma work into a line of dialogue with Sean. Adrian tried to kill the kids and she tried to make me watch. She has these psychic powers I wasn't even aware she had. So there's the plot reason. We have this idea yes. that she has been, uh, she's got a, a level of almost mastermind level of mm -hmm. the ability to manipulate minds and trap people in illusions which really expands yeah. her power set and it's almost like she right. kept it secret until the right time uh so you yeah. did give us an explanation it just it just took a <laughs> minute <laughs> yeah but it doesn't i mean it, it it's a wonky explanation <laughs> it, it you know it's trying to fit a, a a square peg into a round hole now in 55 we also get uh or I think it's 56 Adrian dresses up as the white queen for the first time and this costume is something it's kind of it's kind of just fucking amazing if I'm honest it's a there's a white winged like valkyrie helmet she's got like blue paintwork all over the suit in key places to make it stand out there's bodysuit that's white open cleavage like baubles at her neck and pelvis She's got the highest boots, white cape, green skirt pinned. Like, it's almost hard to describe, but it's really gorgeous. And she's trying to take Emma's place here and look better doing it. Uh, tell us about the design of this insane costume, because it's really gorgeous <laughs> in, in a weird way that kind of never really gets picked up on again. There's like, it's, 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 a, it's a big moment for her. And then she kind of fades away. So this is the costume that was designed by Terry Dodson. And I think Carl Kershaw had come on the book as well. Yes, Carl uh, pitched in. You know, Terry draws the the page with with Adrian in her White Queen costume, but Carl does draw part of the book. Uh, and yeah, this was I don't I can't recall if I gave Terry any instructions or if he just went, you know, hog wild on this costume. But yeah, it's not at all like Emma's old costume. It's something unique to Adrian, but it's pretty cool. It's very. Uh, you know, looking at it now, it almost reminds me a little bit of the Shi'ar of, of Lalandra and that kind of sure, yeah. fashion sense. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty over the top. It's it's kind of nuts. Uh, and you get the idea that this character has very big ambitions. Killed her husband, yeah. got ultimate revenge on her sister, or at least tried, and now she's going to launch herself into a whole new thing. Yeah, and I, I, I'm, I'm remembering now, I think... I think part of the mandate when Jason took over as editor was like, 
and I don't know if this is coming from him or from Bob or both. Uh, and it's not a bad note of, which was basically like, why is, let's do something with Adrian. Like, why is she here? And so I think that's partly why she goes like full on villain in this, in this story and gets the costume and everything where it's like, let, let, let's dial her up a notch and, and make her a, a, a real threat, not just, you know, a character who makes snarky comments, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, you gave her a whole super villainous identity. And it almost seemed like you were going to reform the Hellfire Club from here, which is something writers will do every few years. They'll give us kind of a new roster of the inner circle. I don't recall. I don't think we were going there. Uh, I don't recall ever discussing anything Hellfire Club centric, uh, which is weird because we had her become the White Queen. But, but I think that's as far as we were going. Do you recall uh, the reasoning, if you want to talk about it, and you can turn this down if you want, but do you recall the reasoning why you left Generation X? Uh, I mean, well, the simple reason was I was fired and replaced. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Um, I, I think it was just that the books were not doing as well as they, you know, as as Marvel wanted them to. And with Marvel and DC Comics, the simplest way to sort of get eyes on a book is to do an overhaul, do a creative team change. Uh, and Warren Ellis was, you know, pretty hot at the time. So getting him to take over four of these books. And from what I remember, I don't even remember how many of them he wrote, but he was also sort of like the, like almost like a quote unquote showrunner. Cause I remember Brian Wood was also writing Generation X sort of under Warren. Uh, I forget who else they had on the other books. Yeah, so um, War Warren did like 63 to 66 and then Brian Wood's oh, writing yeah. it after that using kind of Warren's okay. plot lines. So gotcha, gotcha. Adrian, Adrian comes back in 67. She talks in this about, and this is the big issue for her. She talks about having been the white queen in London. Now she's back to get the rest of her revenge. Uh, she gets dressed while she's talking to a man that she's just had sex with, but he's dead now. <laughs> this girl is, <laughs> she's twisted, man. Uh, and then she goes to the Massachusetts Academy. She sees Sink and M kiss. Uh, then she tells a guy named Mr. Ravenwood, like, go ahead with our plan. Issue number 68, she's back at the school. She's been hustling millions of dollars away from the Hellfire Club uh, in, and needs a place to hide. So she blackmails the school and threatens to release the intel that proved the school was training mutants uh, and then like uses that as leverage for a place to stay and hide. But she's clearly there for other reasons. Now there's incidents of anti-mutant aggression begin happening around the school uh, members of generation x are getting attacked jubilee's room gets set on fire we go to issue number 69 adrian uh, greets a young man in her room uh, like she's sleeping with a student basically uh things at the school start getting rougher more mutants are being attacked issue number 70 a bunch of angry parents show up and there's concerned students everywhere uh, Sean and Emma are super overwhelmed. And this is where Adrian admits that she's behind it all. Uh, she warns that there are bombs planted all over the school. And then she fucking kicks Emma right in the face. <laughs> she thinks Emma is knocked out and she literally goes off to blow the school up and murder the children. Uh, Emma wow. attacks her and demands to know why Adrian has done this. And here's her big speech. She says, all your life, all you have ever done is take. You steal from people. You reach into their minds and just rip out whatever you want. You stole to make yourself rich and successful. 
The sick thing is you don't deserve it. I should be the one on top, the one coasting through life, not you. You've caused me enough pain over the years. It's time for you to start hurting. And Emma fights Adrian while the others all go off to disable the bombs. But this is a wildly unpopular X-Men story for this particular reason. The character Sink dies when one of the bombs goes off. It's like this ultimate act of heroism to protect the students. And then Emma, pushed too far, takes a gun out of her waistband. And it's several issues later where she has a dream about that time she fired two shots into Adrian and killed her. Uh, and wow. there's a guy named Detective Jensen who shows up to like investigate some suspicious activity in Adrian's uh, uh, bank account. But Emma knocks the detective out and kind of goes back to a life of crime is kind of where the series winds up. This is the last issue of Generation X, number 75. Wow. Are you familiar with this story with Adrienne, uh, with uh, the bombs, with not. Sink dying? I didn't, I didn't. I mean, I remember. I knew that Sink died. I remembered something about the school blowing up or potentially blowing up, uh, but I didn't really. Uh, I didn't keep up with the book after I left it. So hearing a lot of this is is new to me. So she's she's kind of the big threat that ends the book. Uh, she comes back, yeah. the, the seeds you planted, she comes back for her ultimate revenge. She kills a man, she sleeps with a student, and uh, <laughs> she's uh, she's planning on murdering all of Emma's kids, uh, is is the way things go. So this is the lady that killed Sink, everybody. That's the story you've heard about. Oh. There it is in context. Oh, You're welcome, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't you. You just created the character. It Sink me, is... But it is, you know, it, it is interesting and, and uh, you know, when you do these stories at Marvel and DC, when you introduce somebody new, like I have no ownership over Adrian or anything, but uh, but it, it is there is something fun to to just see what other creators do with the character, even if it's not even if it's not what you would have done. Uh, that that's part of what you sign up for is that yeah, I'm, I'm, if I introduce this character in a Marvel book, they're going to take on a life of their own that I'm not going to have any say over. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad that they used her, even if they may have made choices I wouldn't have, uh, as opposed to just, you know, writing her off in between issues and we never see her again. I don't know if you had a moment when the book was canceled of, well, they brought Warren Ellis in and they canceled it anyway. <laughs> did, did, did you get a, <laughs> did you get a moment of, uh, is, uh on your side? <laughs> maybe a little bit of, uh, maybe a little bit of that. Sure. <laughs> now i know you went on to do other comics after that and obviously you've had a big full career when you and i conclude i'll take time to read through the adrian moments from the emma frost origin series but what's it been like for you to revisit this part of the character uh this character uh, you created i i know one of the one of the big uh, benefits of my show for people listening i hope is this idea of how the sausage is made these editorial decisions the creative teams it changes our characters chronology and our plans for them obviously because things get changed and interrupted a lot yeah it, it's 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 fun to revisit this stuff and talk about it i really wish that i had a better memory of what was going on like why some of these decisions were made uh, you know, I wish I still had some of my old documents to uh, to look over because I'm sure there'd be some interesting things in there. But my memory, it's been so long. There's so little that I remember of it clearly. Uh, but yeah, Generation X was a, a, a bit of a, a bit of a bumpy ride. You know, when, when you get hired on a book and you're really in a groove with the editor and then that editor leaves and uh, you know, you the, the, my relationship with Jason was very different than my than my relationship with Frank. 
Uh, and, and Marvel wanted different things out of the book at that point. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it, it's been fun to revisit it because Generation X was my first regular series, the first time I got to actually have a, an ongoing series. Uh, and and it, 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 I have fond memories of it. As I think I said the last time I was on your show, I wasn't a pre-existing fan of Generation X. So it wasn't a book that I came to as a fan. I, I had to like research the book and read it, you know, in order to kind of audition for it. Uh, but in that process, I became fans of the characters. Uh, and, you know, working with Terry and Rachel was super fun. And, you know, I love their work. Uh, so just going back to revisit this stuff is is a is a kick, and uh, and hearing your dramatic rendition of some of my dialogue uh, was a particular. I don't often get to do my my sexy Heather Locklear voice. <laughs> it's normally reserved for my husband and my husband alone. So you're welcome, listeners. He's a lucky man. <laughs> he would not agree with you when talking about this awful accent. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, Jay, as we're wrapping up, where can people find you online? And we're going to put this out at the end of May. Is there anything you'd like to plug, my friend? Uh, yeah, you can find me. Uh, I'm most active on Twitter, which is just at my name, uh, you know, while that place is still there. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I'm also on Instagram. Uh, same thing. Uh, but I'm not as active on Instagram. Uh, and yeah, end of May. I don't know that I have anything. My most recent book was a graphic novel from Oni Press that came out uh, late last year called Area 510. It's a graphic novel. It's a aliens invade Oakland, California. Uh, and the story centers on a cop and a thief who are handcuffed together during this big invasion. So it's a very small story with a big story sort of happening around it. Uh, and it's a nice little gritty crime sci-fi thriller. Uh, that I did with Justin Greenwood, uh, drew it and co-created it with me. And you can get that uh, at your comic shop or on Amazon or bookstores. Um, and I have something else in the works at Image, but it's not going to be out till next year. So it's too early. Can't talk about it just yet. Not quite yet. Well, phenomenal, man. I, I, I think you're an incredible talent. And I always look forward to whatever you're doing. And I, I really appreciate just spending time. Uh, so next episode of uh, Grey Malkin Lane's Patreon, everybody, listen for uh, my friend Justin Wilder is going to join me. We're going to delve into the family of Charles Xavier. And that's all you need, but we have a lot to say. And there's a wild history that's incredibly crazy to put together. Uh, the next episode of the main show that's coming out right after this is going to feature the issues X-Men, The Hidden Years, numbers six and seven. And the featured guests on that episode are Stephanie Williams and uh, Steve Fox. And I'm so thrilled to have them both coming on because this is the episode that introduces Storm to Graham Malkin Lane as well. So uh, I'm thrilled cool. to be adding a new character to our, to our, uh, our roster here. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you back here next time. So, Jay, that's where I'll stop, and then I'll go insert the origin stuff afterward. Uh, thanks, man. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, this was definitely fun, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, have a beautiful afternoon. And keep me posted on how the strike's going. I hope yes. I hope things resolve quick. Will do. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. Okay. See you later. In New X-Men number 139 in 2003, Grant Morrison and Phil Jimenez uh, take over and we get a view at Emma's memories for the first time. They're making a big deal out of Emma Frost as a character here. We've already met Cordelia and Adrienne. And now we see her whole family. She has a shy closeted brother named Christian who deserves his own Patreon episode in the, in the future. I love this character actually. 
Uh, she has a mother named Hazel who is an abuse victim, and she has a very domineering and abusive father named Winston Frost. And he is just ranting about how awful his children are. Uh, he rules out Christian as an unfit child. <clears throat> and then we see his three daughters sitting on the couch. Cordelia is in a tight top with like Union Jack hippie pants. She has a shaved head. Uh, Emma has like feather, or excuse me, Adrian has like feathered hair and is wearing an elaborate coat with her makeup done. She's filing her nails. And Emma, who is so skinny, is dressed in a, a, a sleeveless, laced up overalls and a tank top. And Winston yells, which of you can I trust to steer our fortune safely into the future? Hmm? Will it be you, Cordelia? Shall I pass my kingdom into your subtle, dark, and devious hands? Or should it be Adrian? Heartless, brilliant Adrian seems the obvious choice. But then there's Emma, rebellious little Emma. And as she's remembering this, Emma thinks, I remember Adrian gasping suddenly at the horrible truth she denied was revealed. She was second best. Poor daddy, after all those years, he was finally telling me he cared in the only way he, he knew how. He was giving me a chance to shine, an opportunity to prove my worth. So I looked him in the eye and said, I think I'll make my own way. And after all that, then we get a surprise series about the childhood of Emma Frost by Carl Ballers, who is coming on my podcast later this summer. The uh, Frosts live in a mansion in Boston, Massachusetts. In the first issue, we get a view of the dysfunctional Frost family sitting around the table. Winston is yelling at Christian. Adrian is dressed in a low-cut jacket. She's bragging about a modeling agency. She wants to be the next Cindy Crawford, but she also wants to work in a father's empire in the future. In issue three, Winston is arguing with Cordelia and disapproving of Emma, and Adrian takes a phone call at the table. She says, tell Leo I don't care how many starving Cambodians have to work in a sweatshop as long as the clothes look good on me. Oof. <laughs> this character needs to be in The Real Housewives. Uh, in number four, in the French Riviera, we see the three Frost sisters laying out sunbathing. And Adrian mentions to Emma how Cordelia's rebellious nature and drug use will stop her from inheriting the family business. She also whispers that Christian is gay. Uh, she hints she knows Emma's secret as well. And Emma then exposes to Winston that Adrian had posed for a magazine without his permission. She also exposes that Winston has had sex with a teenager and says this in front of the entire family. There is a lot of drama in this series. Uh, in number five, things with the Frost family keep getting worse. Hazel is ill because uh, Emma accidentally gave her some bad memories. It's a whole story. Uh, Christian has been outed as gay and he moves out and he moves in with his new boyfriend, Dante Ortega. And Adrian intervened, discovering this information and takes it back to Winston. And Winston then has Dante deported back to Cuba. And Adrian is bragging to Emma about how she had this happen. But then they all learn that Christian has tried to hang himself. This is a very serious story that will give more focus on the show in the future. Uh, in number six at the hospital, Adrian apologizes to Emma, saying she never meant things for things to go this far. But Emma doesn't want to hear it. Shortly after, Adrian grows annoyed at Emma for wanting to help Hazel and taking a renewed interest in Winston's business affairs. And after a family party where there are men just doting over Adrian, 
Winston holds a meeting wondering which one of his children he will pass his fortunes on to. He calls Cordelia dark and devious. He calls Adrian heartless and brilliant. He calls Emma rebellious. And around the same time, he has had Christian committed to a psychiatric ward. Again, we need to do an episode on Christian Frost, obviously, to talk about this story because, oof. Uh, Number 10. Frost Technologies. Winston is asking Adrian if she's been embezzling from him again, and she promises she's changed. A videotape arrives in the mail that shows Emma being held captive, and the hostage takers are demanding a quarter million dollars for her return, or they will kill her. Uh, Winston immediately assumed that Adrian was involved. And she assumes it was fake. So Winston refuses to pay a cent for Emma, like she's not worth it to him. Adrian rushes the videotape to her publicist, Sammy, who purchased the tape and then paid Adrian for it, even though, so so he could put it out in the major media. But uh, Adrian knows this will probably lead to Emma dying. So again, we're almost done with her review here, but we're getting the very clear history that there is a lot of darkness between Emma and Adrian. Not only jealousy and daddy issues, but Adrian was directly involved in Christian's boyfriend being deported, uh, in have a Christian suicide attempt. And immediately afterwards, she sells this tape to the public, uh, which could result in Emma dying. Uh, in number 11, Emma or Adrian uh, was home when the tape was publicly broadcast on the news. And Winston just smacks her across the face. Now he's going to have to pay for Emma in order to save face with the public. That's what he's mad about. Oh, this family is messed up. And then the detectives came over. Uh, Adrian is wearing sunglasses to cover her black eye, but they soon get a package from the kidnappers containing a lock of hair and a severed ear. It wasn't Emma's and she was later rescued. And I will delve more into that story another time, but that's kind of the last time we ever see Adrian. There is a moment in Uncanny X, excuse me, X-Men Unlimited number 34, where Carl Kessel gives us an Emma Frost story. And in this, she's kind of wrestling with her guilt for having killed Adrian. Uh, So this is a story we need. Emma is a feature character. Adrian is the perfect foil for her. I could watch the two of these uh, people go at it. Uh, Winston, obviously, is Emma's other big rival in other ways. Uh, But we see her play off with Sebastian Shaw a lot. I would love to see like a Sebastian-Adrian team up on Krakoa. I would love to see Adrian just messing with things, the cattiness between her and Emma and the just jagged history, their fights, uh, Sink dying, Emma shooting Adrian in the chest. There is so much drama just ready to be uh, drawn upon for these Krakoa stories that could be amazing. Uh, I really love this character. 